Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. It is my pleasure to introduce Gerald Gutterman. He is the Senior Principal Partner and Chief Investment Officer of Gutterman Partners. He joins us here as an expert in all things real estate. And Gerald Gutterman, I'm wondering if you could just describe a little bit for people that may not be familiar with your history and your company, what achievements and accomplishments, because they are many, what you can just describe to give people a little idea of your background. Sure. We're in business now a little over 49 years. Our 50th year will be in a few months. As a matter of fact, we have the same partners. We started in 1969. Next year, we're going to celebrate the 50th year. We're actually going to sign our agreement. We never got around to signing it because we simply couldn't afford the legal fee for an attorney to do it. But we are all each other's lifetime friends. And I'm very lucky to have this kind of relationship with five other guys. Um, to know what we do, uh, we are in the real estate business, obviously. We are developers, builders, owner-operators. On the development side, my company were the original owners and developers of the residential portion of Roosevelt Island called Island House, and we owned it, we operated it. Uh, we owned the Glen Oaks Village, which was 3,000 apartments in Queens. We owned a number of properties around Manhattan, the Park Vendome, 220 East 60th Street, 444 East 57th Street, 50 Sutton Place South, 420 East 58th Street. <laughs> yeah. Um, and a number He's of others. He's got a list. He's got a list. Right. You know, it, it, it adds up to 78,000. It does. Condominium apartments. I know, and rental. And rental apartments uh, owned and managed. Yes. uh, The largest condo owner and operator, at least in New York, if not in the the country. We finished now 16,028 apartments through last year, Mm -hmm. uh, which they tell me is about three and a half times the next largest um, in the New York area. So let's talk about the New York area because we've seen uh, cranes still up and bringing up more buildings and more buildings. Uh, we were just talking uh, ahead of time about how the biggest problem for local or residential real estate markets is overbuilding. Are we overbuilt in New York and what is the consequence if we are? We're overbuilt to the price level that we're trying to sell or rent to. Uh, New York now has a reputation that's shared by uh, Miami and Houston, Texas. Uh, The reputation is if you give a builder in New York a mortgage, he will build in the desert. There's just no limit to the amount that will be built as long as they can borrow the money. You know, it's a funny thing about borrowing money. It's tax-free. And a lot of the building that goes on throughout the country has to do with something called the first draw. The first draw is exactly what it seems to be. It is the first amount you get from a, a lender. It is tax-free because it's a loan, but it's also unaccountable. Because it's unaccountable, can you imagine all of the things you can cover, all of the mistakes you can cover? And consequently, the first draw forces builders to build more 
because they can't cover the costs of what they built previously. So are we heading toward a crash here with respect to the high-end, the mid to high-end condominium markets or, or, or uh, I, apartments? I am convinced that, um, and a reason that I've brought my people back to New York because we work in a number of other states, uh, is that we are going to see an implosion of these ridiculously high-priced uh, condominiums that have no reason to have been built in the first place. They weren't based on, in my humble opinion, sound and reasonable thought. They were based on hopes and dreams of being able to attract folks from other countries who either had flight capital or were simply trying to establish something for ego in the United States. And I think you can see from some of the prices that have been paid, 50 million, 75 million, 100 million dollars, what does that have to do with the time of day? That's simply an outsized ego trying to be self-satisfied. You have written about something described as sleight of hand and magic, and it's not about Houdini. Tell us how sleight of hand and magic factor into real estate investment funds. Oh, yes, it's some of my favorite things. What I have found over the years is that when I noticed funds buying portfolios of properties, they were buying them for different reasons than what I originally thought. I thought they were properly investing the money and looking for a return. What I found was they were looking for magic. What they would do is they would buy a portfolio of maybe three, four, five or more properties and the seller would agree to take the funds in total as one number without apportioning the sale price to each property. So what was happening is the buyer was now deciding on what the pro rata share of purchase price would be of this total for each one of the properties. And when he did that, if you think of it this way, it's really what happened. He could take his best property he was buying and put the lowest basis and he could take the worst property he was buying yeah. and increase that basis out of all reasonable thought. And consequently, when he went to sell, first his return on the, on the best property became astronomical. Right. When he went to sell, he was selling at a, a false basis. Yeah, well, there uh, are a lot of people who are looking for magic. They might get something else. Gerald Gutterman, thank you so much. That was fantastic. Gerald Gutterman is senior principal partner at Gutterman Partners, overseeing thousands and thousands of apartments. We get to speak to one of the 50 most powerful women in New York. She is sitting with us, uh, Leslie Himmel. She is co-managing partner of Himmel and Maringoff Partners, private investor, private uh, landlord in the uh, in New York City and uh, with more than 30 years of experience. Leslie, thank you so much for being with us. Where are we right now with the New York commercial real estate market? We've heard a lot about cooling off in pricing. Uh, how far is this going to go? First of all, thank you for having me on your show. Just to context this, um, Steve Marangoff and I have been investors in Manhattan secondary office buildings for the last 34 years. We've been through many cycles. We feel like we've been at a tipping point for actually a few years waiting for interest rates to start to rise. I was just on a panel where there was a reference by an oak tree saying that there's a correlation to cap rates of about 0.8 to 1 
uh, as interest rates go up. So as interest rates rise, pricing should come down. There's been way too much money chasing goods here. Cap rates were at three and four for a few years, three, three and 4%, maybe even negative yields. And you've seen the bid ask spread changing a lot. So it feels like there's gonna be repricing, although New York City is still the best capital in the world and lots of international capital is still coming here. I wonder if you could just take a step back and tell us about Bernard Mendick and oh. what influence Bernie Mendick had on your career. Well, wow, that's a question I didn't expect. Uh, Bernie Mendick was the chair of Rebney, and uh, I knew him in my first Real estate year. board of New York. Yeah, yes, real, real estate board of New York. And um, I had been at Integrated Resources in my start after Harvard Business School, and he told me I was gonna be nothing unless I started my own business. And um, that was pretty brave. That was 35 years ago for a woman to try to start her own business as an owner and developer. And um, I did it. Was it and the right advice? It was great advice. And I have uh, picked a great partner. We've been partners 34 years. Uh, he made fun of me in a way because that was Bernie's style. And um, he was a great influence. And I'm very grateful he passed away many years ago, but he was a real entrepreneur and I've been able to follow a little bit in his footsteps. You know, I want to pick up on a point that you were talking about with respect to foreign money coming into New York. Have you seen that slow with possible capital restrictions from China or just the slowing of the economy there? Canada has increased. They're investing in New York particularly, which is my sub-market that I focus on. Um, there's definitely been a slowing down in Asian money, but there's a still enormous amount of capital coming here, um, also from Europe at this point. So it's really just an interest rate story from your perspective, the cooling. It's, there was interest rate and also alternative investments. As one can invest again in bonds. You see, even like BlackRock, you had three, $3 billion go out from their stocks in the last quarter. So you're seeing money flow from stocks into investing in, in bond investments again. And, and therefore, you know, real estate, which should catch up eventually with, with uh, inflation, I think you, you'll still have a steady flow. We're not, going, we're not going off a cliff this time. You've been quoted as saying that Midtown Manhattan will look really different but it'll take five years, most likely 10. Tell us how it will look different. Okay. Well, Lisa and I were talking before the show about our strategy for 34 years has been buying in emerging neighborhoods. We bought in Harlem, we bought in uh, Soho, we bought in NoHo, we bought in Long Island City almost 30 years ago. Midtown East is the new emerging market. And it's so out right now, tenants are paying more to be, like Netflix paid $120 a foot to be on Broadway and 18th Street. Nobody wants to be in Midtown. The, the new zoning that we finally got after eight years of fighting is going to help kickstart the renovation and rebuilding of properties, and it's just going to be reimagined. It's going to take at least five, maybe ten years for it to come back. It's still an epicenter of New York. Are you buying right now in uh, Midtown East, or are you sitting on the sidelines for a while? We're waiting for pricing to get a little bit more realistic, but we have a war chest of a few hundred million dollars ready to pounce with institutional partners to back us up. How much do prices have to come down to get in? They just have, there has to be more volume on the market, and I think about 10%, maybe 15. Rebuilding, the rebuilding of Park Avenue. Do you see that calculus changing at all? Well, I, I think Fisher Brothers had this fabulous contest where they had everything being reimagined. Um, they're doing a great job in getting creative, and I think there'll be something happening in the next five or ten years, and it's necessary to make it cool again. 
The recent announcement that J.P. Morgan is going to tear down their building on Park Avenue, build a new, bigger, better, brighter, taller. Is that what's going to happen? That's going to be one example of many that you're going to see. They're the air rights transfer that you can have from landmarks that's happening in multiple buildings right now. Is there any neighborhood in New York City that you think could even see values appreciate going forward in the next, say, two years? The boroughs. Really? Even after Brooklyn already like, has gone well, through the Well, the Opportunity Zone re- legislation is going to bring a lot of money to the, to the boroughs. All right. Well done. Thank you very much for being here and having us here at the Eisner Amper Global Leaders in Real Estate Summit. I want to thank you very much, uh, Leslie Himmel, co-managing partner at Himmel Marangoff Properties, telling us all about New York real estate. Well done and congratulations. Thank you so much for having me. I want to introduce a very special guest. We are privileged to be able to speak with Don Peoples, the chairman and chief executive of the Peoples Corporation. Long uh, time experience in the market, uh, a real good bird's eye view over what's going on. So let's start there. We got more disappointing housing data today. Where are we in the housing cycle from your perspective? Um, I think that we are in a uh, more in the bottom half, b- bottom of the cycle right now. I think that the market's catching its breath. I mean, everything's healthy. I mean, job growth employment, everything's very healthy. I mean, cost have um, had a big impact on affordability, and so fewer people are able to buy right now because, not because of income issues, but because of the rising and run-up in cost. And so the market's now got to find its way back down. I mean, developers, you know, my company included, we were extremely optimistic that this big run um, of price increases would continue, and it's, it's not, and, I, and it shouldn't have. I mean, what happened is that we had the Great Recession, development came to a screeching halt up until, say, 2000, late 2011 to 2012, and there was huge pent-up demand. Well, the market has now satisfied that pent-up demand, and now we're back on, on a more equilibrium level. So we can't have these big run-ups on prices. I mean, cost, uh, materials and cost have run up significantly because of this big rush to develop. So now things are going to settle down a little bit, and I think we'll see a much more healthy market. Barring some catastrophic event, the market's going to level off. There'll be a normal growth as opposed to this extreme volatility um, in, the, in the real estate market. Just to step back for a moment, uh, you left Rutgers pre-med to go into real estate. Yes. You, did a major development in D.C. That was successful. Then something happened. You decided to go, you want to go to Miami. Now you're based in Coral Gables. You've got properties all over the United States, but your tagline of the company is affirmative development. And that's not by coincidence. Can you tell us about that? Well, thank you. Um, And Pim, we like, you know, as a company, we like geographic and product type diversification. So I like to um, do, go into other markets, urban gateway markets with big barriers to entry. Um, but you know, I quit Rutgers to go work in real estate and I was exposed to real estate by my mother. Um, my mother um, raised me, my parents were divorced when I was five, so she was the breadwinner in our household and uh, she was knocking down you know, uh, and confronting barriers um, throughout her career. Uh, and so I wanted to create an environment in my company that recognizes that we need to make this a more level playing field. And so 
How to do that is to make sure by my company that we provide access to equal opportunities for minority and women entrepreneurs. So as a whole, throughout our company, um, we, since the history of our company, 25, over 25% of all of our contracts for our projects have gone to minority and women-owned businesses. I mean, so think about this, New York City, 67% minority, and as we stand today, and it's 53% female, and as we stand today, the city does less than 3% of its contracts with minority and women-owned businesses. So I'm very proud of that, and so that's a big part of what our company um, does, is we create environments of opportunity. We are a capitalistic democracy. A capitalistic democracy means that businesses lead, entrepreneurs innovate and lead, and so we cannot abdicate this responsibility of, a, 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 of, a, of inclusiveness um, to the public sector, and the private sector has a key role to do that. Larry Fink said that in his annual letter to shareholders that um, you know, uh, BlackRock has to do more than just make profits, but invest um, in, in impact investing. And I think a big part of that is that, you know, opportunities ought to be reflective of the demographics of our society. And they're not, and especially in the business sector. And so businesses have to accept that responsibility. So that's yeah. what, why we do what we do. Businesses lead, so do politicians. And the Washington Post reported that you're considering running for New York City mayor. Is that still in the cards? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm considering it. Um, I did before. Um, I don't have a personal ambition uh, to be in politics or a personal ambition to be mayor of New York City. I never have had that kind of personal ambition. But I do um, have a personal commitment to um, balancing a system that you know makes our country great and entrepreneurship and business is what makes America a great nation amongst its people and uh, so we have a responsibility as a business um, to do that so I'm interested in that regard. I'm curious as a business owner do you think that the policies currently in place on a national level are very supportive of business? Yes but they create um, unfortunately how, how they're being presented, unfortunately, um, are creating a great deal of divisiveness. And yeah, I think less regulations, good for entrepreneurship. I think uh, you know, um, more free-flowing capital is good for entrepreneurship. I mean, but there are, I mean, there's a, there's an inst there are institutions also that are very important for our country as well, such as, I mean, the Federal Reserve. I mean, that should be immune from politics. Um, so so I, it's a double-edged sword. Well, just to, uh, to amplify that, I mean, you were a congressional page, so you've seen it from the inside, and now you see it from the other side as well. Yes, in fact, I was a page my la and an intern um, my last two years of high school, and uh, so I have um, watched um, multiple presidents, every president since Carter. I'm, I've actually met them, and I've seen them in action, and I've been a student of politics. And, and the ability to be trans uh, of politics to be transformative, and also how the nation has changed and evolved. Civil rights movement happened in my lifetime. Um, women's rights, um, you know, happened in my lifetime, yeah. early, in my, you know, early in my adult life, um, and so I've seen a lot happen. So in 20 seconds, are there any areas in the United States that you think still could see price gains that you see as opportunities? Yes, I think Los Angeles is gonna see price gains. I think uh, Charlotte, um, is going to see price gains. Miami and South Florida as a whole is going to get another run, and Central Florida is going to get another run. Those will be in, in, in Tennessee. Um, those are where people are moving to and businesses are moving to um, for different reasons, uh, mainly uh, for taxes. And so we'll see some more growth in those markets.
And of course, you'll announce whether you're going to run for mayor with us, right? I mean, if you decide to do that. If I decide to do that, I would certainly do that. All right, well okay. done. Thanks very much for being with us. Don Peebles, he is the chairman and the chief executive of the Peebles Corporation. They are based in Coral Gables, Florida. Joining us now, though, we have Jim Bianco. He is the president and founder of Bianco Research. He is also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Jim Bianco, let's begin with President Donald Trump and his attack on Jay Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve. Your reaction? I don't have a problem with it. I know a lot of people do. Uh, the Federal Reserve, I kind of put in this kind of a parallel with the Supreme Court. We always criticize the Supreme Court. Yes. The president could remove a Federal Reserve chairman for cause, but the hurdle is very, very high. And Trump has said to the point uh, so far that he doesn't want to do that. But there's nothing wrong with the president of the United States expressing his opinion about monetary policy and making the Federal Reserve explain themselves. If they believe his criticism of monetary policy will affect it, then we should frankly look for new Federal Reserve uh, personnel that are able to stomach somebody questioning what they're doing. Okay. They are not allowed to live in an ivy tower without criticism. There's nothing wrong with what the president is doing. Now, maybe the words he's chosen, I would have chosen different words, but I don't have a problem with, with what he's attempting to do here. Do you think that he's right? Do you think that the Federal Reserve is raising rates too quickly? I do think he's right, and I do think the Federal Reserve is raising rates too quickly, but I also would have said, even if I didn't believe that, <coughs> it was okay for him to, uh, to, to do this. And I do think that the Federal Reserve should be asked, as Jay Powell was in the first question of his press conference on September 26th, the history of the Federal Reserve is you raise rates too much, something breaks, and then it's too late, we have a recession. They are the leading cause of recessions over the last Wait, hundred years. Hold Hold on one yeah. second, though, Jim. There is a, a whole school of thought that at a certain point, keeping rates too low is harmful for the economy, that if you raise rates and actually people can earn some money on their cash, they can actually use it to go out and spend, and it actually uh, boosts growth. What do you say to that? I absolutely agree with that, that uh, monetary policy in the extreme, either way, creates dislocations in the economy. Too low can create problems. Too high can create problems. The question is whether or not they're going too high. One of the leading indicators that says the Fed's moved too much is an inverted yield curve. We don't have that now, but we are on our way towards one, especially if the Fed intends on raising rates four more times between now and the end of next year. We could very well be at an inverted yield curve. And when the Fed is asked about this, they dismiss the yield curve. We've done that every cycle. They, they dismiss it, and it always turns out to be a good indicator. And um, when asked, you know, just back to my thing, when asked at the first question of the presser in September, uh, are you going to go till something breaks, Powell uncharacteristically did not have an answer for that. He just basically said, you know, we're smart people, and hopefully we'll figure it out before we get there. They don't know where the breaking point is. So that's why I think it's fair to ask those questions. This is dangerous stuff when you raise rates eight times, plan on raising rates four more times. History has shown you cause problems when you do this. That's your history. And there's got to be a better answer than hopefully we won't create another problem again this time. We'll see. That seems to be what they're saying right now. 
Jim Bianco, if you happen to be an investor that has long stocks, what's the best hedge against a market sell-off if you don't want to sell them? Um, that's a good question because what's happening in the marketplace now <coughs> excuse me, is that the relationships between stocks and bonds and all the other assets is becoming very correlated, meaning they all move up and down together, meaning... If you want to look, what do I do with my money if the stock market's not working? The answer is there's not much you can do except for cash. If you want to move to cash, that's always a safe instrument to put your money in. You, you, you earn 2% because that's about where cash is, but you don't take any downside risk. If the question then is, well, anything but cash, the answer is there is no option. That has been the biggest problem with the market this year is the re-correlation of all of these markets together. Your cover story in Bloomberg Magazine about what's happening at AQR and the problems they're having is a direct result of this, is that all of these markets are becoming very correlated, and it's been a very difficult problem for a lot of people. Jim Bianco, we love having you on. Thank you so much for being with us. Jim Bianco is president and founder of Bianco Research, as well as a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.